the letters come in when my mom was just a little toddler. He would write these beautiful little letters, not talking about his anxiety about having his own father interned while he was risking his life every day. This is July 7th, 1944. He says, There is Mickey. Chilly winds may blow, but I know spring will surely come. Coming up on the Janice Adams Show, All That Endures. Love, loss, letters from an unthinkable time, and songs that must be sung. Singer, songwriter, teacher, miracle, Lucas Mehata Rotman. and what and how do we come to be if it were not for family? What endures when those lives are endangered or taken away? My guest today here on the Janice Adams Show is singer, songwriter, teacher, descendant of family seized into the whirlwinds of two of the 20th century's worst atrocities, the Jewish Holocaust and Japanese internment of World War II. Lucas Mehata Rotman's very existence is a miracle. He comes to us bearing letters, artifacts, stories that must be told, and songs that must be sung. Today on the Janice Adams Show, Dear Mickey, an all-American family saga. My mom's side of the family comes from Hawaii. So there were a lot of Japanese Americans that came to Hawaii uh, late 1800s. My grandfather was born on Maui and my grandmother was born in Honolulu. They married and during that time after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, it was an extremely difficult time for everybody but especially for Japanese Americans. In Hawaii, there wasn't an internment in the same way as there was in the mainland in California. So in California, all Japanese Americans were sort of rounded up after Pearl Harbor and put into concentration camps. And notice that I do use the word concentration camps because that's what they were. My father, who was a very proud Jew, always said concentration camps. You know, he said, you know, if you want to call what the Nazis did death camps, fine. But these are definitely concentration camps, you know, when you don't have a choice and you're forced to be there because of your race or religion. The concentration camps were um, located in usually very desolate sections of the United States. Uh, One of the first and most famous, the Manzanar camp outside of San Francisco, it was actually a horse stable. They didn't have a place to put folks, so they just put them in these horse stables. So basically people would tell you they could just smell the smell of horses, you know, everywhere. And they were just jammed in these rooms and, um, you know, they didn't know why they were there. They had numbers printed on them and um, they lost their rights. And uh, while this was sort of happening, many Japanese Americans were trying to figure out how they were going to sort of respond to this. And many young Japanese American men sort of decided that one way that they can sort of show their patriotism to show that they were loyal Americans was to fight in the war. My grandfather, he actually went in as an officer. He was in the ROTC and he was a teacher. So a lot of his students who were Japanese Americans, uh, he was an agricultural teacher. They sort of looked at 
to him and they sort of said, oh, wow, if Mr. Mihara is doing it, then I want to do it too. You know, I want to go in. So uh, he actually brought in a lot of folks who, who um, were, you know, who he was respected in the community. So in Hawaii, the way the internment worked was um, they didn't just take everybody because they couldn't in Hawaii. Because if you took everybody, you wouldn't have an economy in Hawaii because it was the Asian folks did all the work, right? So it was like, you know, they, they couldn't do that. So what they so did Hawaii's was- So Hawaii's working class yes. were the indigenous people. Yes. And so, well, there were the indigenous people and, you know, also sort of like all the folks who came from Japan and China and the Philippines and all those folks, they worked together. Many of them all worked in agriculture in, in the sugarcane plantations and fields and things like that. So many were involved in that work. So what they did was they looked for people members of the community who were leaders, people who are teachers, people who especially pe people who taught Japanese. Um, and Japanese language schools were very, very, very big uh, part of sort of maintaining some sense of, of culture. And what they did was they literally came and took them away and put them in concentration camps. And my grandfather enlisted in the army once they said that they had a segregated regiment that they would let Japanese Americans fight. They'd let him be a part of that, and he joined. Before that even happened, his own father, at bayonet point, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, the soldiers came and took him from his home. My great-grandfather, Tichiro, was a language teacher. He, he taught and ran a, a Japanese language school because of that. Um, at bayonet point, they literally took him from his home. He said, hey, can I go and just put my, my shoes on? You know, I take my shoes off so I don't bring dirt in the house. And he went to do that, and they just pulled the guns out on him, right, and aimed it at him. And it was like, okay, I'm on my way. And so they sort of grabbed him and- Did they separate him from his family? So Yes, he was very much so. My great-grandmother didn't know where he was. They took a while to figure out that he was in a county lockup and they used to go down and sort of like bring, bring bento boxes and food to him, you know. But then after a number of weeks, they took him to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and they took him to a Department of Justice prison there. And so he spent the uh, rest of the actually it was really interesting i never understood why but he actually was there until even after the war was over he was actually they kept him there even and um, typical of many japanese older japanese americans who experienced internment he never talked about it uh, but at the same time uh, my grandfather was getting basic training in fort shelby and he uh he brought my grandmother uh, who just had a baby, my mom, uh, over from Hawaii. This is an interesting story. She gets on the train and, and, you know, she's heading over to meet her husband, my grandfather, and an FBI agent gets on the train. And she's like, can I help you? She's like, yes, well, I'm supposed to be here with you because, you know, I have to make sure that, um, you know, you're kept safe. That's what he said, and <laughs> you're kept safe. <laughs> but, you know, we all know what that really meant. And so basically my, my grandmother was sort of followed by an FBI agent, even when she went into the bathroom on the train <laughs> until she managed to get down south where um, my grandfather was in basic training. So there was a story that she always tells about that. Uh, my and grandfather- thank goodness she did tell the story. Yes, yes. Otherwise we, we wouldn't know just the level of depravity.
that we're really and, dealing with here. Yes. And, and it was quite a level of depravity. And so my grandmother and my mother stayed with my father through basic training. He went off to fight in the war in the European theater. So, you know, my mom was just a little toddler. And so he wanted to stay connected to my mom in some way. And so he would write these beautiful little letters to my mother, not talking about the, <laughs> the horrors of war. I'm not talking about his anxiety about sort of like, you know, having his own father interned while he was risking his life every day. And so he'd write these dear little letters to my mom, and she really treasured these, these wonderful letters. And so uh, if you want me to share one, I can definitely share one. I'd love it. All right. So this is July 7th, 1944. He says, Dearest Susan Mickey. How is daddy's sweetheart today? Uh, uh, mommy wrote me a letter saying Mickey was a very good girl because she drinks her milk, eats her cow cow, and goes to sleep like a good girl. Daddy got the cookies you sent. They were good. Thank you very much. And I am reading the books too. This is a little rabbit. He loved to draw little pictures. That's what she loved. This is a little rabbit that we have for our mascot. He is the cutest little fellow and plays all day near daddy's tent house all by himself. He does not cry and eats his vegetables very well. <laughs> and this is daddy's tent house. See, daddy has a bed and chair now, right? And he has a picture of his tent. And one thing I wanted to say, which was very interesting that my mom has no memory of, is that on the other side of each of these letters are outlines of the pictures so basically what she did was she would take the pictures as a little girl turn them over and then draw on the other side an outline so that she oh could draw God. the same so i found these outlines i said mom what is this she says oh i don't know but you could tell that that's what happened so every time he sent a letter like this home she treasured it so much that she kept it and she she you know, she would draw the outline on the back and it's her way know. of touching him, like yes. connecting with him. Yes. And mom always talked about these letters being very, very special. And she was such a tiny thing. She has, she had no other way to be connected to him. And, um, and so he really made a point of writing to her very frequently. Yeah. And finish that letter. I mean, it is so sweet. Yeah, this is daddy's car. He does not have the car he had before. <laughs> and he has a picture of the Jeep. <laughs> uh, be a good girl, daddy's sweetheart. Don't forget to kiss mommy every night for daddy. And don't make mommy angry. Love daddy. And that's very typical of the sort of thing that he, uh, that he would write. just so special. There's a letter that I'm looking at December 11th. He's in the south of France. Oh, okay, with the cat on it. Okay. Dear sweetest Mickey, how is daddy's sweetheart today? A good girl, I hope. First, I must tell you about our friend, the pussy cat that lives with us. She is the most playful and friendly cat I have ever seen. She always jumps on daddy's uh, and daddy and plays until bedtime. At night, the rascal sleeps right on daddy's bed. Imagine that. She is a good cat, um, except when she doesn't eat all the food we give her, fussy old cat. And daddy's house is now a small, tiny house right on the top of the hill. It is so cold and far away from the trolleys, the taxis. Poor daddy. There's no road to the house and all the food in mommy's letters come to daddy on horsey. 
So I have a bunch of these sort of letters that we still keep. And they're very treasured by my family. They've even been treasured by other people too. They've been in a couple, they've been in a couple museums and things like that. Also, those letters of father soldiering his way through battles at home and abroad wrote to his young daughter that continue to inspire his grandson, singer, songwriter, teacher, Lucas Mejara Rothman, and his song, Letters. More with Lucas here on the Janice Adams Show after the break. Start to thaw and the tall hills will start to glow. Purple clover and daffodils, colors bright and true. Could the sky above me be more blue? Outlines that you trace, pencil placed in the tiny artist's hand. Dearest Mickey, here's a kitten from the shed, keep her fed, now she's never far away. No fire to warm us, this soldier's life. Molly and Kagazin in the early morning forsaken trail words that fail to make a mess dearest Mickey if your fingers touch the pages through the ages will our story have to end and it's there for you children in wooden shoes rabbit hopping by Promise me you'll be a big girl and drink your milk and don't you cry. 
goodbye. Janice Adams show with my guest today, Lucas Rockman. He is bringing us an extraordinary story of his family, a truly American saga. His father of Jewish ancestry, his mother of Japanese ancestry, they meet in the United States. And I call Lucas the miracle because both families are descendants of some of the worst atrocities of the 20th century. Um, But before we get to that, Lucas, tell us about you. How did you grow up and make your living and decide on who you would be? We've heard some of your music and we'll hear a little bit more of it. How did you come to that? Oh boy, I have on both sides of my family, there are loads of teachers. So it was kind of like, it's kind of in my blood to sort of be a teacher. And um, one of the first jobs I had was actually at a wonderful place that I would love people to go to if they have a chance. It's called the Japanese House and Garden or Shofuso. It's a 17th century style Japanese house that's rebuilt in Philadelphia. And um, one of my first jobs was actually as a tour guide there. And I must have been like, oh my God, early 20s or something like that. And it was like the best job I ever had. And um, what did you love about it? One of the things I loved about it was sort of like I got to I, you know, I got to learn about Japanese. My grandmother sent me there because she was like, you don't know much about being Japanese. You need to go about being Japanese. You need to learn from the from some experts, right? So she would send me, and there were these older Japanese ladies who would sort of try to teach me um, some language and, and some, some, culture, some culture and things like that, how to do tea ceremony and all this. But what I loved was kids would come in, like kids from all over the city. And I would be, I, nobody wanted to work with the school groups. And I was like, oh, I'll work with them. And, I, and the younger, the better. I just seemed to just really like to work with the kids and they seemed to like me. So that was the first opportunity I had to sort of like do some teaching. I had spent a lot of time in Latin America. I was, uh, I'd spent a lot of time traveling. And um, I, when you're, when you're in Latin America, you're around kids all the time. And, you know, being an only child, I was sort of like, oh my God, you know, um, and, you know, I, w- I would be working in places like Nicaragua and things like that doing volunteer So how work. did you get there though? Last thing I knew you were in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> well, back during the 80s, politically, we were supporting dictators in Latin America. The United we States support, was. The United States was. And um, there were many of us in the peace activist community who were against that. And a lot of us in the peace activist community wanted to go to Nicaragua to show our support. And we would go there work in coffee plantations. I would work and dig latrines and play with the 
the kids and get to know the families. And, um, and then I traveled through most of Central America and into South America, and I was gone for about a year and a half. And in that trip, I was around kids all the time. And I sort of realized, oh, you know, this is, this is really cool. I could probably do this, um, you know, as there's something here for me. And when I got back, they were really looking for teachers, male teachers, especially to work in uh, early childhood programs. And because I, at that point, uh, my Spanish had gotten pretty good, I was able to start off and get a job fairly easily. But the music part comes from when I was teaching little kids. Here I am trying to run a classroom of 30 little ones and, you know, and they're running around the room. I was like, well, how am I going to get them to stop running around? And somebody said, Lucas, you used to play guitar pull that baby out again. And so, um, so I went back and I listened to my old Pete Seeger records, got it. I says, Oh, I can do this. I can do this. And then I started playing kids songs. I was working in a bilingual school and I learned some songs in Spanish and, um, and I really realized the power of music, um, and how there's something intrinsic in, in young children. <laughs> and it just is sort of like the way that they learn. And, um, once I sort of grasped that, and I was ne I've never been an official music teacher, you know, I don't read music or anything like that, but um, I've always utilized music in every class that I've ever been to, whether I'm working with very young kids or older kids, always used music. And in the process of using music, I would sort of like write songs with kids, you know, we would do poetry workshops and things like that. And it was through that that I sort of, you know, we were writing a song. They were helping me write a song for my wife on her, <laughs> on our wedding and things like that. And the kids were sort of like coming up with ideas for sort of like, my wife has blue eyes. So we were sort of like, what are some ways we could describe blue eyes and things like that? And we were, before you know, we had this song. So I basically ripped off my first song from my third grade students. It was probably the first time I ever really thought about, oh, wow, this is really fun. You know, I can do this with kids, but I can also do this on my own. So um, the kids were actually my inspiration for songwriting and all that sort of stuff. So. so when you involve children in music, normally when you think of taking music lessons, it's really a bit dogmatic. Ah, uh, yes. I studied piano from the age of three, so now you, oh, you know exactly <laughs> here, yes, and you hold your fingers exactly this way. When you were leading 30 children like that, um, you're saying you use music, but I'm getting the feeling that, how can I say it, that, that the music kind of used you as well. Ah, yes. Yeah. No, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I think it comes very naturally. And when you pay attention to kids, you could actually see they sing all the time. Right. And um, I always found that, you know, even when I was working with kids who may, you know, have a lot of struggles in their life, there was something about music that brought them in and could make them feel at home and a part of a, a larger community, you know, and if I could be successful in even learning some of their music or some of the things that they loved, that would go such a long way in terms of connecting with them. And there's also something about music when you're faced with trauma, as so many kids are, there's something very calming, soothing about music. And also it's a great way to overcome stresses and problems in your life. And I think kids really, really see that and respond to that. So, uh, And have you yeah. noticed what it does to their academic performance? 
Oh yeah, definitely. You definitely find that. Well, there, when you're working with young kids, um, you know, so much, if you want kids to sort of be readers and writers and things like that, they have to be able to utilize oral language, right? And so many of those skills that they kind of need to sort of become readers and writers really come through oral language. And the more that you sing with kids, um, it sort of really helps them develop the vocabulary. It, it, it helps them to sort of play with language and with words and with rhyming. And that definitely goes a long way towards sort of like helping kids sort of become readers and writers. And once, and if they already are readers and writers, if they're a little older, sort of then, um, you know, it just sort of like really, really, really helps them to sort of stretch their their thinking and their ability to use language. And, you know, with older kids, too, it's a great way to teach history through song. How so? Sort of long, well, you know, you sort of look at the history of, say, any sort of folk song, you know, Follow the Drinking Gourd was sort of like one that my kids in third grade used to sort of love. And they, you know, but, and then you can sort of follow the narrative of where that story comes from. What was the reason for it? And why did you follow it? Right. And sort of like, so, you know, there's a sort of story narrative, or you could look at something like This Land is Your Land, right? Look at the story behind that song. Who was Woody Guthrie? Why did he write that song? You know, it's very different. You know, you're coming from a very different tradition when you're coming from the folk tradition, you know, you're not, it's not about sort of learning scales and sort of about sort of like that particular, not that there's anything, you know, I, I, I kind of wished I had learned some scales, you know, but, um, you know, come, it's a very different way of sort of like approaching music. And so it's very accessible for kids at, at wherever they are. One thing I noticed is that a lot of my kids end up playing guitar. I don't know. <laughs> what inspired that, Lucas? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I don't know. Through the valley of shadow, I will show no fear. Look straight ahead, I will hide my tears. I will hide my tears, Lord, I'll hide my tears. Look straight ahead, I will hide my tears. Their egg-filled words ringing in my ears. Lose the as I started writing songs, you know, now I'm now as I'm sort of thinking about family stories as a songwriter. Now I'm trying to shift into songs that reflect the history of my my own family. Tell us about your family. My mom, her name is Mickey Susan Rotman, Mihara Rotman, and she is Japanese American. And uh, my father, Seymour Rotman, uh, was, uh, was, he's not with us anymore. He was uh, Jewish, a uh, Jewish artist. My parents, uh, interestingly, met in art school of all places in Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. Uh, my mom had just uh, she had won a scholarship uh, from high school to get into the academy, and so she was um, she was just starting out as an artist. And my dad was starting out as an artist too, but he just came back from the war, so he was actually in uh, in the Korean conflict, and he had used his GI Bill to actually go to art school, and so he was 
much older than my mom. Um, yeah. And so that's where they that's where they actually met for the first time. And um, and yeah, and I came along not so long afterwards. So yes. that's that's where they met. And he was Jewish, grew up in uh, kind of working class um, working class Philadelphia and in, in the Kensington section. Is he? He's a descendant of a Holocaust survivor. Yeah, there definitely are family members who who definitely members who died in, you know, in the camps. A lot were fortunate enough to sort of get out uh, in time. Like my my grandmother Eva, I sort of remember stories that she would tell. She actually was able to get out before that happened, but she she had lots of stories to tell about you know, pogroms um, in Poland. And she, one thing she always did was she would always show me, and I hated this, but it was, it, it taught me a lot. She would show me, she said, you see this wound? And she would show me a bullet wound, a little, a literally oh. a little hole in her side. And I was like, Grandma, I don't want to see that. But she was trying to tell me, she said, you know how I got that? You know, these were Cossacks who hated Jews. And, um, you know, these are the people that, that shot me and were trying to kill me and I had to escape from them. What do you know of her life before the war came and before something as horrible as being shot? My grandmother, they didn't come from sort of like the religious Jewish tradition. They came from what we call the workman's circle tradition, which is more of more kind of like socialist, uh, humanitarian, uh, humanistic sort of background. They were more culturally Jewish rather than sort of religiously Jewish, although I do know that there were some rabbinical scholars in the family. They came from a very poor background. She worked in sweatshops for most of her life, not very much education. And um, I remember her telling me stories about, um, you know, the different pogroms that they had in, in the village in Poland and how at one point after being shot, she told me the story about sort of escaping um, <laughs> in a truck filled with potatoes. And she literally was talked about sort of like being underneath this cart being, you know, this horse drawn cart filled with potatoes in order to sort of escape this. And then she sort of like made her way. Um, I think she actually made her way at then actually lived in Russia for uh, a period of time before sort of um, coming to the United States coming to state and and do you know uh, roughly what year you're talking about in yeah, her lifetime this would probably be um i think this was probably early 1900s she definitely got out of europe before the 1930s uh before the rise of of the nazis but obviously there was a lot of anti-semitism sort of like very very rampant long before that as well especially mm -hmm. in eastern europe so she was mostly she was sort of escaping that and um it was always very interesting to me she always had very warm feelings about the soviet union most jews don't but for her um i think she saw the soviet union at that particular time and place as a place where she kind of got some refuge from sort yeah. of like from from other people who were committing atrocities against the Jewish people. Um, Your story about her being in a wagon under a pile of potatoes sounds so much to me like the Underground Railroad here. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where people oh. escaped 
under those kinds of circumstances, being hidden in, in strange false bottom wagons and things like that, and other people who put their lives on the line to help them do so. Right. My grandmother and, and sort of my father's family having a lot of affinity for the African-American community um, just because of sort of like the, the commonality, the struggles and things like that. Um, and, um, you know, so I sort of remember from a very early age, um, my, my father's, uh, uh, not everyone, but a good part of my family, father's family, especially my aunt, especially were very, uh, were very much involved in, in different ways in the civil rights movement and things like that. So um, I think that sort of like, I think that experience um, had, had a very, you know, had a very deep resonance in, in my family. Lucas, when you refer to the Jewish side of your family, then how far back do you know your stories? I'll be honest with you, Janice. Um, my, the, I know more about my Japanese American side than I do with my Jewish, than I know of my sort of Jewish heritage. And do you know you, about your grandfather? You've told us about something about your grandmother. He died when I was quite young, even before I got into kindergarten. He died of a heart attack. He ran a small grocery store in the Kensington section of Philadelphia, him and my, my grandmother. And it was, uh, and I remember my dad used to tell stories. My dad was kind of like, um, you know, a very vivacious kind of like, you know, strong, he had strong, strongly opinionated, was one of these people who sort of like was always, if he saw something going wrong, he would immediately jump up and say, hey, that's not right. You know what I mean? He was that kind of a person, you know, whereas I was always like more sort of laid back. I was like, dad, stop, stop, stop. But, um, you know, <laughs> so he was, my dad would say, I had to fight my way over every corner whenever I was going to school. And I had, you know, teachers who were literally Nazis. <laughs> He would literally tell me stories about having a gym teacher who literally had a Nazi armband on, you know, wow. sort of like, you know, before World War II um, when he was growing up in the 30s. So I remember, I remember those stories and I remember sort of like witnessing um, some, you know, some really egregious acts of anti-Semitism perpetrated against him. It took me a while to sort of like understand sort of where that was sort of like coming from and all that. But I remember some really frightening moments um, <laughs> when we would be stopped and, and, and people would be trying to sort of like basically attack him. And I, I sort of have those memories kind of seared into my consciousness, you know, to this very day. So uh, yeah, sort of seeing that perpetrated both against my dad and against my mom. And so, whereas, as a biracial person, I'm kind of, you know, it's hard to tell what I am. I might not look exactly like either my, totally like either my parents, but my experience with uh, that kind of trauma is more what I saw happening to my parents, you know, and especially at a time in the country where, you know, we hadn't even had the loving decision yet. So in many places, uh, my parents, my parents' union was illegal. So for people who don't know the loving issue is um, for the ironically named yes. couple, literally named loving, the wife was black and the husband was white, and they had been charged with a, with a crime for 
being together. And that was in the 50s, I think it was. I think it was, yeah. I think it was the 50s. It was. And I, I don't think the, the decision, though, came down until the 60s. I, I think it, was, it wasn't until the mid-60s that they actually won the case. So um, now as I'm sort of thinking about family stories, I'm sort of thinking about, wow, how can this become sort of a narrative? And I think that's where that letter song came out of, sort of like thinking, looking at the actual letters and um, thinking about, oh, wow, you know, that, you know, how could I sort of like express that, you know, relationship on a page in some sort of a way? So, um, you know, I think now that I'm not teaching, um, now that I'm sort of like, well, you're, I'm always going to be teaching in some way or other, I guess. But, um, but now that I sort of have a little bit more time that I'm retired, I'm going to definitely look into thinking of ways of looking at sort of like family stories and putting them into some sort of a narrative through music. And I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do that, but that is sort of like what, what I would like to spend some time working more with our guest, Lucas Rotman, after the break, here on the Janice Adams Show. Here I stand alone, armed with a fountain pen, and the faith of Daniel to face this lion's den. Face a lion's den, Lord, lion's den. Faith of Daniel to face this lion's den. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with singer, songwriter, teacher, Lucas Mehara Rotman, an amazing proof of how the stories we tell today can impact people for generations to come in ways we could never imagine. In Lucas's case, it was one letter in particular written December 11, 1944, 77 years to the day from when you will first hear this show. A soldier's love letter to his young daughter about a fussy old cat who doesn't always like her dinner, the lack of a drivable road to his World War II base camp at the top of a hill in war-torn France, and the mule who steps a little livelier when she knows she's bringing him food and letters from home which is fascinating, Janice, I just wanted to mention because we actually went and visited this village um, where he was staying uh, called Monton. We actually met the granddaughter of the person who worked the mules that took the chairs um, and food and things like that up. Yeah. Turned, yes, we sort of like, um, this was part of the French saga that is a part of my family too. 
turns out that my grandfather, while he was away in um, in France, staying around here, um, he well, he met a woman. Oh, not, not not my grandma. He met another woman, and they had a relationship. And uh, we found out, and he didn't know it because he was killed in action before he found out anything. But he didn't know that um, this woman, Mary Louise, was pregnant and had a, had a child. And uh, and it took years and years for us to find out that my mom actually had a half brother. So um, we found out about two years ago and we went and visited them. And I actually got to see this place um, where they actually met. How did you connect with that side of your family? Oh no, I mean, they're, they're great. They're good friends of us. It, and, and the crazy thing is, it's sort of like, it turns out that some of the, some of the grandkids uh, lived, like I live in Brooklyn, um, and it seems like some of these grandkids actually ha had a business uh, for years, not very far from here, like a mile from here, over you know, uh, <laughs> over on Flatbush Avenue. And we were like, we never knew. And um, my grandmother's brother, when he found out, he found out because this daughter of my grandfather's son. Um, so essentially, your grandfather had a love child. I'll put it that yes. way. And he grew up in a small village in the south of France, and he was ostracized to a certain extent for being different uh, mm -hmm. in a small village. Because he's um, Japanese, European. And, right. And also because, you know, he doesn't have a present father. Yes. You know, so a combination of those. So he didn't really talk to anybody about his Japanese ancestry. But he had a middle name that was Sab for Saburo which was my grandfather's uh, first name. Um, and uh, so his daughter, right? His daughter grows up. Your grandfather's um, yeah. granddaughter. Granddaughter grows up and sort of realizes, wait a minute, where does Saab come from? That's not a French name. What could that be? Tries to talk to her father, but father doesn't want to say anything about it because feels a certain amount of shame or whatever. And so when he dies, she does her own research and finds out about the 442nd, the all Japanese American brigade that fought over there in France and in Italy. Uh, that was the segregated uh, unit that my grandfather was a part of. Found out that he was stationed there. And then she said, oh, I wonder if, you know, my, you know, <laughs> grandfather could have been Japanese American. <laughs> she's a researcher, she's a medical researcher, so she's uh, very clever. And eventually found us and, um, and, and also found all of my Hawaiian family. Um, and now they are very much a part of our lives. How exciting. So would you finish reading the that letter though, to have yeah. his actual words? Sure. Poor daddy, there's no road to the house. So all the food and mommy's letters come to daddy on horsey up and up a winding trail the horsey gets tired but when they have cookies and letters for daddy they come running up the hill <laughs> so be a good girl mickey and don't forget to give mommy a very big hug and kiss for daddy all right um daddy will come home soon to play all right goodbye daddy Wow. Uh, that's one of my favorites. Yes, it, 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 it's one of mine. The, the packet of letters is so extraordinary, and I'm so grateful to you for, for sharing them with us. 
this story about the the two families, his French descendant family and his Japanese American descendant family, um, or Japanese French family and Japanese American descendant family, the fact that you come together seems to say a lot about the desperate times in which families live. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. You know, and um, just what happens in in how people cling to life in the midst of war. Yeah. What was your grandmother here in the United States doing while he was away? How did oh, she keep herself going? Yeah, very good question. And um, I'm glad you asked it because the more that I sort of look through as I, as I go through my, um, my various letters and things like that uh, and family history, the more I'm just sort of so impressed with my grandmother, just as a person. I mean, she was somebody who valued education so much, and she was sort of like very fierce about it. Got a college degree and got a master's degree in social work, right? Um, you know, Japanese American families tend to be very, especially at that time, very traditional, very, very traditional, very patriarchal. Well, what did her father do? Her father ran a bank in uh, Honolulu. So that's how she had yeah. the wherewithal to be able to go to college and then go to grad school. Right. But, but, but she had to, um, within Japanese American families, it wasn't very typical uh, to sort of have daughters be educated, but her own mother right? Her own mother, I guess that would be my great grandmother, was very fierce about, you know, saying, no, I want my daughters educated, which was not very typical. And so she made sure that uh, both of her daughters uh, were, were educated. So my grandmother, so they moved from the countryside, north side of the island, over to the to Honolulu to make sure that she got a good education, and then she. But that wasn't typical of of white American families. I know that that's that's why I was saying that it was very um, you know people usually want to talk to me about my grandfather, which is understandable. But I think my grandmother's story is also equally important. Then when she was stuck in the mainland, she was stuck in New York City, and here she is with a little daughter. Her husband is dead. She can't get back to Hawaii to her family because they're not, you know, they're not letting, you know, you just can't get on a plane to go. You can't just get on a, you know, you can't just get on a ship and go because it's wartime, right? So she was really stuck. And so she had to make a life for herself. And what did um, she do? So she had a, a master's in social work and she had been working in Honolulu as a social worker. Um, and so she moved to Philadelphia where she went to school originally at University of Pennsylvania. And she um, she got bought a home uh, near the School of Social Work and she um, became a social worker. And uh, she did that for pretty much the entirety of her life. And, you know, was a, you know, was, you know, struggling professional single mom, you know, way back way back in the day. This um, incongruity, your grandfather being grandfather. in the US military as an officer, fighting for the United States, meanwhile, the United States has imprisoned in a, in a concentration camp, his father. So the question that I have there is, because this country is patrilineal, so what did it mean therefore for your grandmother, did the government do anything to help 
her as a widow of a soldier who died in battle while her father-in-law, I mean, is in a prison camp? You know, generally families, I mean, our family was pretty lucky, to be honest with you. I mean, we had a certain amount of privilege being sort of Hawaiian, and I need to say that, you know, the story of sort of West Coast Japanese was much, much more difficult. I mean, they had, you know, so they would be coming back, uh, and they have nothing because, you know, a lot of what happened in California was a land grab. It was an opportunity to take some of the richest farmland that Japanese American farmers had turned into into gold, basically. And it was an opportunity for people to take their land. So they lost everything. You know what I mean? Whereas in Hawaii, we lost a lot. Um, and we suffered a lot, but nowhere near the amount of suffering that, you know, with the stories that uh, West Coast folks have, where they sort of lost their livelihoods, they lost their jobs, they lost um, their homes, uh, any kind of, uh, any kind of an income. So um, for from them. I mean, yes. they didn't lose it. It was yes. taken. <laughs> taken. Yes, taken. So um, I was just uh, saying that, you know, to a certain extent, as difficult as it was for my grandmother to sort of like have this life for herself and raise this child on her own and deal with the trauma of, you know, sort of, you know, of the everyday, you know, extreme racism that I'm sure she she faced all the time, you know, not, not a large Japanese American community in Philadelphia. A, a lot of the help that they got in Philadelphia was from sort of like from their own small Japanese American community, right? But also from the Quakers. You know, my mom ended up going to like a friend's school. And I've heard that the Quakers really were some of the only people to really reach out to Japanese Americans during the internment and sort of like after the internment. My grandma. She didn't. She never told me any particular stories about being helped, but she always had a fondness for um, for the Quakers and for for the work that they did. And I assume part of that was because of all the work that they did to help uh, Japanese Americans during this very very difficult time. Lucas, this has been an amazing story, um, and just uh, a rare opportunity for this interview. I, I thank you for that. And um, if it's okay with you, uh, Janice, um, I found out very recently that um, before my grandfather died, he had an opportunity to talk to a reverend um, about his experience in the war. And supposedly this quote comes from my grandfather. <laughs> um, these words were are attributed to my grandfather. Doesn't mention him by name, but the reason that we're pretty sure it's him is because there there weren't very many officers. You know what I mean in that particular regiment. You know, and he was obviously he talks about having a daughter. So we're almost you know we're like ninety nine percent sure that this is my grandfather who spoke. And it and the words seem to resonate his belief systems. It says, "I did not know." what I was fighting for when I first went into the army. But now I know it is more than just fighting for the happiness of people at home. It is fighting for all races of people in the world, a world where all people could live together, a world in which one can live without hatreds, prejudices, a just world economically and spiritually. I am fighting for my child and freedom for her. And if so doing so, if I should die, I will have no regrets. Lucas Rotman, thank you so much for being our guest here on oh, the show thank today. Thank you.
Thank you, Janice. I love your show. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Lucas Mehara Rotman and to you for joining us here on The Janice Adams Show today. For the podcast, more about the show, links to Lucas's music, family letters, and a photo of him with his mother and grandmother, age 100, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved.